This is Guns and Butter. It's going over what we know of past wars, wars based on lies, colonial policies of this era for the benefit of the super rich, the 200 billionaires who own more than half the world. And all of this, all of this is important to remember. None of the wars of the past, the colonial wars, the wholesale genocide in the Americas, in Africa, none of it could have taken place without the support, not only of the sword, or later the gun, or the Gatling gun, or later the helicopters and the tanks. Without, it was the sword and the cross. And that is what the role of so many human rights organizations function as today, along with wholly sincere organizations. Global colonial wars are justified and blessed as high humanitarian ideals to bring God, to bring civilization, to bring salvation, and today to bring democracy, the white man's burden. We've heard all of those things, and the same is true today, and that's what the forces behind the campaign to save Dofar. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, part one. Five different perspectives on the ongoing crisis in the Darfur region explore the many ethical, moral, and political questions behind popular calls for humanitarian intervention and regime change in Sudan. The speakers are co-director of the International Action Center in New York, Sarah Flounders, professor of anthropology at Smith College, Dr. Elliot Fratkin, independent investigative journalist, Keith Harmon Snow, writer and researcher on war crimes, Dimitri Oram, and associate professor of anthropology at the University of Massachusetts, Enoch Page. This is part one. Part two concludes with a panel discussion. This open discussion on the crisis in Darfur took place on July 6, 2006, at Smith College in Massachusetts. We begin with Sarah Flounders. I really want to begin by congratulating the organizers of tonight's meeting because it's not easy to go against the tide and it's not easy to respond when there is war propaganda being whipped up and you feel you don't know much about the issue. Uh, And, of course, who could oppose a humanitarian effort such as is being presented in Darfur? Who is not for saving lives and especially in Africa today. So I want to applaud those who are here to really bring facts and context and who organized tonight's meeting. It's so important. And I just open by saying that it is war propaganda that is being presented as a humanitarian effort, and it's being done through campus organizations, a national march in Washington that was held on April 30th, The the day after, there was a major march, 300,000 organized in Washington, D.C., 7,000 in 
In, in New York City, 7,000 in Washington, D.C. had more pu publicity, more press, more national politicians, celebrities, and all of that. And that alone should tell us something, because the organizers of that rally had a special meeting with President Bush just beforehand, where he thanked them and applauded their efforts. That also should tell us something. It was a day just before also millions and millions of immigrant workers came out across the country demanding full rights and recognition, citizenship, participation. And again, the rally to save Darfur had more coverage, more press. These are the kind of warning bells that should ask us, what is it about when the media gives so much attention? There's a fall march at the opening of the uh, UN uh, General Assembly planned in September, again to pressure for Save Darfur. There are huge fundraising events taking place across the country, and which also happened here. And it's always posed that it's an absolute moral imperative that any question is suspect. And this is the power that the media also has, a major corporate media, to shape an issue and to do so relentlessly. So tonight we're going to look at what we know about Sudan, what we're being told about the crisis in Darfur, the western region of Sudan, and also recalling what we know about past U.S. wars and also what we know about the U.S. role in Africa. Now, Sudan, and it's so important that this map is here, uh, the largest country in Africa, on the Red Sea, just south of Egypt, bordering eight countries in Africa, a population of 35 million. It doesn't look so big when you see it in the context of Africa. But Sudan is larger than all of Western Europe. And it has far, far more hundreds of ethnic nationalities, languages, and cultures more than Europe, some 400. And it has a culture and history far older than Europe, more than 5,000 years of history. The western region, Darfur, is the size of France, with 6 million people, and about 35 ethnic groups and tribes, perhaps far more. It depends on their, their different views. About half that population are small subsistence farmers, and half are nomadic herders of cattle and camels, of the grass and lowlands. There is a local war, yes, because there's a drought of enormous proportions, whether you, it's the result of global warming, the encroaching Sahara, there's not enough water to sustain the crops, the village wells, and the animal grazers. And that alone, in a region that could be the breadbasket of Africa, enormously fertile, with many hundreds and thousands of years of both agriculture and grazing. Now, what we're being told about Darfur is that there is a genocide, a virtual holocaust taking place, that there is an invading Arab forces who are assaulting African peoples, that the Janjaweed militia are backed by the central government and that they are responsible for everything that is taking place in Darfur. Now, the very first thing it's important to know about Darfur and that the media never raises and always distorts 
by calling one group Arab and another African, is that all of the groups in Darfur and all the different ethnic tribes and peoples are indigenous to the region, are black, are African, all are Muslim, actually all are Sunni Muslim. The whole population speaks Arabic, along with many local dialects. Even knowing that much, you can see the way in which the media has entirely distorted the question of what is happening in Darfur. There is intertribal and interethnic fighting over increasingly scarce resources, as I said, water and grazing rights and local wells. There is famine. There are thousands of people and tens of thousands of people at risk from famine, malnutrition, and disease. But who is militarizing the region? That's important. Who's shipping in arms? Now, the United States organized military exercises in Chad, right next door, the largest in Africa since World War II. It's the U.S. who funds and equips and trains the army of Idris Deba, who's a dictator, the military dictator of Chad, and also, through that, the funding and equipping of the rebel groups in Darfur, and also rebel groups in the south and in the east of Sudan. And this is all in the name of regime change, something we're all very familiar with. U.S. sanctions have been in place against Sudan since 1997. That's nine years. And it's a stranglehold on investments. It's an effort to stop development. It's an effort to stop the building of an oil pipeline that would give Sudan the very resources that it needs in order to survive, to develop, and to cope with the, the crisis in terms of the drought and the famine. It was the U.S. who forced the pullout of oil corporations and has, as their established policy, regime change in Sudan. And I'm sure that Keith Snow will be going much more into the question of oil in Sudan. Oil, so important, and we know that oil is what so often leads U.S. to war because there's enormous, enormous profit and who controls, who dominates, who oil. It's not just a need to run our cars here. China was able to and did build a pipeline through Sudan, and so oil is now pumping uh, since 2000. Now, what's the greatest killer in Sudan today? And this is recognized even in all the media. It's not bullets. It's malnutrition and disease. A country that could be the richest country of Africa. It has oil, gas, gold, copper, uranium, fertile land, and grazing land. And yet the biggest killer are malaria and TB. They really take the greatest toll. Two preventable, treatable diseases. And what was the U.S. response to this? August 20th, 1998, President Clinton, 19 cruise missiles slammed into the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical plant, a small plant that actually provided 60% of the available medicine in Sudan. So you could just look at that figure and say more than half the deaths 
in Sudan, by any calculation, come from the destruction of the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical plant. Now, I don't know how anyone could expect a humanitarian operation of any type when they look at the U.S. role and responsibility through sanctions, through bombing, and through militarization of the whole region. There's no, been no rebuilding and no compensation for the destruction of the Al-Shifa plant. I, I was in the Sudan just after this U.S. bombing. We went as part of a fact-finding delegation with pharmacists, doctors, to look at this. The charge was it was a VX nerve gas facility. And what it was was small capsules being put into bottles for distribution to the population. The doctors could not conceive that the one resource that they had to knit the country together, to build unity, basic health program, irrigation, education, had been blasted apart. Um, now, what do we know about past U.S. wars? And I'm not going to go back to the wars against the native populations, a genocide in its very basis, the wars against African people and slavery. This is a country built on the genocide of the native populations and on slavery. We won't even touch on the Spanish-American War and remember the Maine and all the lies or the Philippine-American War where a million Philippine people died or the Korean War with more than four million Korean deaths or the Vietnam War with two to three million Vietnamese. Let's just look in the last three years at weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Not once, but this story was raised thousands and thousands of times with charts and graphs and mobile uh, germ labs and missiles and uranium yellow cake and invoices presented and scientific data. We were saturated with weapons of mass destruction, and it was all, all a fraud and a lie to justify U.S. occupation. And now we all know. We all know it was a lie. We could look at 1991 and the congressional hearings where a young Kuwaiti nurse described how Kuwaiti babies were pulled from incubators and dashed to the floor, tearfully described this. Part of a Human Rights Watch uh, report also, she turned out to be the Kuwaiti ambassador's 15-year-old daughter, hadn't been in Kuwait in years. All this eyewitness testimony, all a lie and a fraud. We should remember this when we hear about the genocide taking place, the eyewitness testimony in Darfur today. We should remember the 1991 the satellite photos of Iraqi troops massed on the Saudi border, also a total fraud. And we should remember the sanctions. Everyone here so well knows, and in Northampton where the, the, the rallies, the weekly rallies and gatherings were, I think, known throughout the entire country, and I just want to applaud that work, so well known. A million and a half deaths. And there's some forces who really want to cover this up and rewrite history. And what's their solution? Impose sanctions on Sudan. That's a real starter, right, for a humanitarian solution. Just rushing through some other things, because we can look at Iraq today, three and a half years of U.S. occupation, the majority of the population still doesn't have potable drinking water, electricity, and it was a country that had full, free health care and education before U.S. bombing and destruction. Can the U.S. really provide potable water, food, electricity in the Sudan when they can't do so in the land between two rivers? Now, there are many Zionist groups who've rallied especially 
whole synagogues and yeshivas, and a large effort along with evangelical Christian groups that talk about driving the driving of African groups out by brutal Arab uh, repressive armies and so on. We should remember, especially today in Palestine, the single greatest uprooting of indigenous population of our age, of our period, more than five million Palestinian refugees today, and the bombing just last week in Gaza of the power plant that provided potable water and electricity to, for two-thirds of Gaza. This is a way wars are made by Israel or the U.S. today. So when we hear about humanitarian intervention, and I'm so glad that D Dimitri will go into more detail on this, let's just remember one more thing, and that's Kosovo and the genocide, the humanitarian war in 1999, where the U.S. media said 100,000 and then 500,000 Kosovar Albanians were in mass graves in Kosovo that it was necessary 70 days of bombing, whereby the U.S. own estimates they destroyed 14, 14 Yugoslav tanks and 467 schools. That's a humanitarian bombing, along with communications and roads and crowded markets and the use of depleted uranium weapons and cluster bombs. And then in the end, it was the International Tribunal for War Crimes in Yugoslavia based at The Hague. They sent forensic teams from 17 NATO countries. And what did they find? They were gathering evidence of mass graves on those half million bodies. They found there was not one mass grave, not one mass grave in Kosovo. And that the sum total of deaths of bodies that they were able to dig up were 2,067 Serb, Kosovar, Christian and Muslim. That's important. It's important when we hear the stories of genocide hasn't pulled out U.S. forces. Instead, they privatized all the industry and very nicely profited the profits. We could talk about, I have to wrap up, the U.S. role, the U.N. role, because there's a whole effort, we've got to bring the U.N. into this, the U.N. role in Iraq or in Korea or in Haiti or in Congo and go on and on. I just want to close on one short point about the U.S. role in Africa. We could talk about the CIA role in the targeting and the arrest of Nelson Mandela in South Africa, their support of the apartheid regime with huge investments. The CIA role in the assassination of the first elected prime minister of Congo, Patrice Lumumba. We could remember humanitarian intervention in Somalia. Remember that? how U.S. troops needed to, they couldn't airdrop supplies, no, they couldn't air, it took aircraft carriers and tanks and helicopters and a full-scale invasion and the building of a base to bring humanitarian relief to Somalia. I think we can all remember that fully racist movie, Black Hawk Down, describing this humanitarian effort. Just last week, we saw what happened and who was the support of these warlords. It turned out to be the U.S., and they've just been driven out, finally, of Mogadishu, but they say it was the biggest setback for the U.S. in Africa and in the region in recent U.S. history, and it all came out that the, the force who has been supporting with millions of dollars the warlords in Somalia was the CIA. So I'm going I'm to close on this by saying that what it's going over what we know of past wars, wars based on lies, colonial policies of this era 
for the benefit of the super rich, the 200 billionaires who own more than half the world. And all of this, all of this is important to remember. None of the wars of the past, the colonial wars, the wholesale genocide in the Americas, in Africa, none of it could have taken place without the support not only of the sword or later the gun or the Gatling gun or later the helicopters and the tanks. Without, it was the sword and the cross. And that is what the role of so many human rights organizations function as today, along with wholly sincere organizations. Global colonial wars are justified and blessed as high humanitarian ideals to bring God, to bring civilization, to bring salvation, and today to bring democracy, the white man's burden. We've heard all of those things, and the same is true today, and that's where the forces behind the campaign to save Dofar. I, I don't have time, I'm sorry, to go into just who some of these forces are. I see the wrap-up sign. I have to, um, to, to finish by saying I urge everyone to look at the literature here today. There's no way we could touch on it all. To sign on the sign-up sheets, to be in touch on this through email. There's sheets over there by, by Nick Camarado, by Keith Snow, extensive, who's done so much work on this issue, by the other panelists. You can't absorb it all tonight, but if each one teach one, and as we teach, let's remember what we already have learned about U.S. wars, endless wars, past, present, and future. You've been listening to Sarah Flounders, co-director of the International Action Center in New York City and author of the article, The U.S. Role in Sudan, published by Al Jazeera. Today's show, Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The next speaker is Dr. Elliot Fratkin, professor and chair of the Anthropology Department at Smith College and co-director of Smith's African Studies program. I want to thank the organizers of this program for bringing together a community discussion on Darfur. There's two points I want to make. And I hope this will contribute to the discussion. The first is, Darfur is a genuine and serious human rights catastrophe. In the past two years, between 200,000 and 400,000 people have died. Many people from diseases, but also many who have been attacked, raped, looted, and killed. Up to two million people are internally or internationally displaced. This situation demands intervention in my view, by the United Nations, to broker a peace accord and provide peacekeepers to prevent further killing. Additionally, we need to support the many humanitarian organizations providing food, medicine, and security to the region's victims, some of which I list in this handout. The second point I wish to make is to emphasize the internal dynamics of this crisis, internal to Sudan. Darfur is, is only one of several conflicts in Sudan which includes the 21-year-old civil war in the south with the SPLA, war against Nubans in the Nuba Mountains in the center of the country, and against Beni Amir and other people in the Blue Nile and eastern regions of the country. There's a map at the end of my handout. Each of these conflicts have their origins in the desires of people for local autonomy, control of their resources, and national representation. In other words, self-determination. 
and each have been violently suppressed by the Khartoum government. In addition, Arab intellectuals, residents in Khartoum who want a secular state have also been harassed in prison and forced to leave. So as a professor and a researcher of African studies, I worry when Africans are described as either passive pawns of external manipulations or as essentialized victims or worse, villains, as our press does constantly. Now, this does not mean that outside forces, the United States, China, Al-Qaeda, do not have interests in the region. Of course they do. So do neighboring countries. Libya, Eritrea, Egypt, Kenya, Uganda, Chad, all have their own vested interests. But African people, like people everywhere, try to exert control over their lives, which is very difficult on the continent with its current climate of war, drought, HIV AIDS, and debt. So I want to emphasize African agency and describe briefly the chain of events that have led up and contributed to the Darfur crisis. And in fact, most of my talk really talks about the South and the SPLA struggle because it's linked very much to Darfur. So my talk is entitled The Root Causes of the Sudan Civil Wars, um, which I borrow from this very good book by Douglas Johnson of the same name. And I also recommend this book by Gerard Prunier called Darfur, The Ambiguous Genocide, which is a very detailed look at the, the sequence of events. When you look at the history of Sudan and its politics, you'll find civil wars not only over the last 30 years, but many tracing back to the 19th century. While the Western media characterizes the fighting as based on race or religion, the Arab Muslim North versus the black animist or Christian South, they have a harder time understanding the Darfur killings or the wars in the Blue Nile or in Eastern Sudan where all the populations, as the last speaker said, are Muslim. And race, as my colleague Enoch Page, I hope will expand on, is culturally constructed. It's not a physical thing. So brief history. And again, I'm going to skip through this fast. I hope some of the handouts. What I don't put in the handouts is what happened before 1983, when the SPLA started and the Civil War broke out again. For as long as history has been reported, and this goes back to Herodotus in the Greek era, Nile River states have raided southern Sudan for slaves. In Arabic, Sudan means black, or the land of the blacks. When Egypt adopted Islam in the 7th century AD, they had trade agreements with Christian Nuba, and that included the payment of slaves in ivory. Senar, established along the Blue Nile in the 16th century, raided the Ethiopian foothills for slaves. And the Darfur Sultanate, established in the 17th century, raided what is now Bar al-Ghazal, for slaves in ivory, a situation which lasted well into the 20th century. Bar al-Ghazal, by the way, simply means the plain of gazelles. Islam was introduced to the Western Sudanic kingdoms, including Darfur, in the 13th and 14th centuries, along with the Arabic language and the adoption of Sharia law. However, Sudan did not develop an indigenous ulama, the official body of experts with defined orthodoxy, until quite recently. And there's quite a bit of variation on how Islam was practiced throughout Sudan. The Islamic states that emerged drew their armies from slaves acquired in the south. Non-Muslims, particularly Nilotic-speaking Dinka, Shaluk, and Nuer peoples. Now, briefly, in the 19th century, Sudan fell under Ottoman rule, what they called the Turkiya, the period of the Turks. And they were ruled from Egypt by Muhammad Ali. That was his name? And I can see why he took it. An Albanian soldier who who emerged as Egypt's ruler after the Napoleonic Wars. He invaded and annexed Sudan to Egypt in 1820, and this lasted until 1883. 
This was the period of the most intense slave raiding in Sudan's history, when after 1807, other sources of slaves had dried up, and the slaves were essential for the growing cotton exports in the plantations, both in Egypt and Sudan, which used male labor and female labor was taken for domestic servitude. In 1883, this Turco-Egyptian regime was overthrown by the modest state, modest is an M-A-H-D-I-S-D, not M-O-D-E-S-T, the Mahdi, based on the charismatic religious figure of Muhammad Ahmed, the Mahdi or savior, and his successor, Khalifa Abdullahi, whose autocratic government was again based largely on standing army of slave riflemen from the south and from the west. The state was based in Omdurman, present-day Khartoum. They plundered the south, but they did not attempt to convert them to Islam, a different feature than the 20th century. At the end of the century, Sudan and other East African countries went through an intense period of famine, drought, smallpox, rinderpest, which wiped out their cattle between 1888 and 1892, the exact time the English were coming in. And they were so weakened that it allowed the English to come into Kenya, Sudan, and other places. They overthrew the Mahdi's with help from people from the south and the west, as well as Christian Nuba. But also Muslim groups participated, including the Beni Amir, who lived near Kassala. So the British ruled for the next almost 60 years, from 1899 to 1956. This was called the Anglo-Egyptian Condominium. They reinstalled tribal leaders in the west. They ruled by indirect rule, meaning they, they brought back the tribal chiefs. There was a lot of autonomy but the southern region was completely uh, neglected. No schools were built, very few hospitals. Uh, Christian missionaries from the West provided those services. And it was the British who formally made the distinction of uh, black Africans from Arab Muslims, uh, similar to what, what happened in Rwanda in labeling Tutsi and, and Hutu under the colonial regimes. There was some resistance, but in the main, um, things were basically left undisturbed until 1946, right after World War II, the British decided they're going to let Sudan go. In 56, it gained its independence. This was three years after Nasser in Egypt. had had a military coup and overthrew the king. And Nasser unilaterally said they're not going to keep Sudan. Although they would like to keep it as a federation, they were letting it go. The Khartoum intellectuals, predominantly Muslim Arabs, formed their own national party and tried to figure out how they would run their country. The South was um, not included. The South had their own party, the Liberal Party, but they were a minority in the parliament. And their ideas of regional autonomy, not separation, but regional autonomy were not agreed upon by the new government of the North. So the first civil war starts in 1956 and it lasts till 1972. Mainly it was a rebellion by soldiers, predominantly the soldiers from the South against the government. And you also had the ascendancy of the Muslim party, Ummah, which was led by the original Mahdi's posthumous son, Saeed al-Rahman al-Mahdi. And they decided to keep Sudan intact. Now, there was a pull and push between secularists and Muslim fundamentalists over the next 20 years, way before 9-11. This happened in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and what happened was in 1972, there was a coup, and the mayor came to power with the help of socialists and communists. Unfortunately, in 1971, the communists tried to assassinate Nameri, so he wiped them out. And he increasingly came under the pressure of the Muslim fundamentalists led by al-Turabi. And Turabi, as you know, is a cleric who 
um, was most responsible for cultivating Osama bin Laden. So these, these are facts. There was a tension in Sudan between those who wanted a, a Sharia state, a strict Islamic fundamental state spread to the whole country, and those who wanted more secular and regional autonomy. So the origins of the war, again, in 1983, the war breaks out again. The SPLA forms under John Garang. You all know that name. Garang was um, actually educated at Grinnell College. He was an orphan. Uh, Dinka, who had fought in the first civil war, uh, was too young. And they sent him to college, and he got his PhD in agricultural economics at the University of Dar es Salaam. Garang was an autocrat, though. He allowed no dissent within the SPLA. They only had two congresses, one in 1983 and one in 1994. And he acquired most of his guns in the 70s from uh, Mengistu in Ethiopia. Now, Mengistu was a Soviet client. So the SPLA originally was seen by the United States as Soviet forces. And... Um, we had an uneasy policy towards Khartoum, even under um, Sadiq. Now, by 1989, Tarabi had gained ascendancy. Al-Bashir had a coup and tried to establish an Islamic state with Sharia throughout the whole country. This meant floggings or cutting off of hands, Sharia law in the south, and the war intensified. Now, unfortunately, this occurs at a time when Mengistu is overthrown. Not unfortunately, because I'm glad Mengistu was overthrown. He was a brutal dictator. And he was overthrown by their own forces in Ethiopia. The OLF, the Aroma Liberation Front, the Eritreans, the EPLF, the Tigrayans. And when they overthrew Mengistu, Garang lost all support. And they weakened terribly by 1991. And that's when you start to have the factional fighting civil war between SPLA, between different factions. Some call it New Era and Dinka factions. It wasn't just that. It was a crisis in leadership. And people in the SPLA wanted a more democratic, responsive kind of movement. Another thing to emphasize is Garang never called for um, secession. What he called for was a revamping of the Sudan government, a democratic, secular government for all of Sudan. Now, there's a lot of problems with Garang, but one wasn't that he was going to break the country up into small pieces. Meanwhile, in Darfur, you have tensions between the, the local people, the Zaragua, excuse me my pronunciation, and the fur, who are agricultural, but also their pastoral neighbors, as the last talk said. There's a tradition, goes back to the 19th century, of state power to use pastoralists for their militias. And the reward for the militias, including the Janjaweed today, is looting. That's the motivation. It's not political, it's not religious, it's looting and to take as much as they can and attack the enemies of the state. This happened to Posa people were used against Dinka. You have people fighting the Beni Amir. You have people in the southwest. This happened all over the country. Now, just to cut to the chase, as you can read the chronology, in 2003, right in the beginning of the year, two liberation movements in Darfur, the SLA, the Sudan Liberation Movement Army, and the JEM, a more um, radical Islamic group, um, were fighting against Khartoum and they attacked police posts and army stations. This was the exact same time that a peace had been brokered between the United States and the SPLA and Khartoum called the Naivasha Accords, where in Naivasha, Kenya, a peace agreement was reached with the SPLA. One minute left. We're going to do this, though. <laughs> Khartoum did not need another rebellion in Darfur, and they smashed very hard. And the Janjaweed came in on horses. You all know from the other stories, this occurs the following or preceding 
air attacks by the Khartoum government and the armies brought in, houses are burned, people are driven away. I don't think the purpose was strictly genocide. I don't want to get into that discussion. We can do that. It was basically more in the order of ethnic cleansing and that we're going to get them out of there and break up the resistance to Khartoum. So let me just conclude. What should we do? The facts are real. 200 to 400,000 people have died, many from disease, but many from, from murder. There are 2 million people displaced. There are 14,000 people working with international NGOs on both sides of the border. The John Jaweed are now attacking inside Chad. So the situation is not decreasing. John Garang died in a helicopter crash last summer, coming back from Uganda. So the leadership of the SPLA is completely up in the air, and the prospects of a lasting peace between Khartoum and the SPLA is also up in the air. Well, I agree both with efforts to raise money for the NGOs dealing with the refugees. There's a list in the back of my handout, including Medicine Sound Frontier, Save the Children, Oxfam. I'm also a very strong believer in placing a neutral force to stop the killings that the United Nations may be the only people with enough pressure, including sanctions, to bring about. And my, I'll close with a statement from Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch urges the international community to take immediate steps to protect civilians and ensure humanitarian access to all areas of Darfur. The United Nations Security Council and the African Union must put intense pressure on the governments of Sudan to immediately remove all obstacles to humanitarian operations, cease attacks on civilians, and facilitate both the current African Union mission in Sudan and any future UN mission in Darfur. All individuals responsible for attacks on civilians, including humanitarian convoys, should also be placed under UN protection and with UN sanctions. As of now, Bashir has refused to allow any UN troops into Sudan. You've been listening to Dr. Elliot Fratkin, Professor of Anthropology at Smith College. Today's show, Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We conclude Part 1 with independent investigative and photojournalist Keith Harmon Snow. Keith Snow is a human rights and genocide investigator in Africa. Thank you. Everyone is encouraged to stay, and we're going to take any question that comes, and I personally will stay here all night if it's necessary. I object to these forums where people are flown in from around the world, stay for no questions at all, and leave. At the previous event on Sudan, there were no questions of substance, and those of substance that were asked were not answered. We were told, we've been told in the press over and over and over, that there's no oil in Darfur. As opposed to the map of Africa, which we commonly see, which shows really nothing at all except dark, the dark continent, I offer you the oil map of Africa. Please look at this map. It's just completely, all the color you see is oil companies' concessions whether they're working in Libya or Algeria, in Sudan, which is the biggest block in the middle there, the bright green one. That particular block that I pointed at is in Darfur. Um, So we will take all questions. Please feel free and stay. Elliot said to me, I hope uh, you don't get angry at me for what I'm going to say. And I said, please, you know, this is a democracy. Say what you like. It's not going to make me angry. I support what he said, that we need some kind of humanitarian intervention in Darfur. What 
is being called for, I consider to be completely unacceptable under the terms under which we're, it's described to us and what we're told. My bottom line is that if people understand what they're getting into, then fine. If we all want to get into supporting this thing, then, then as long as we all know and understand what we're talking about, that's fine. But when we're not given all the truth, I find it extremely offensive. And it does make me very angry because I've been working on the ground in Africa for quite a while now. Um, Elliot's list of recommended humanitarian organizations and relief agencies, just to pick a couple off the top, number four, Care International. One of their largest funders is Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin is the number one weapons producer in the country. I used to work for the GE Aerospace. They were bought up by Martin, which was then bought up by Lockheed. It's become Lockheed Martin. This is the biggest nightmare of weapons production facilities in the world, and these weapons are shipped all over the world. When we call for sanctions against some government that's producing weapons, the United States should be at the top of the list. To call for sanctions against... Thank you. I encourage you to uh, applaud at the end because you're taking my time. <laughs> Thank you. Another one, International Crisis Group. One of the biggest spokesmen on Sudan is John Prendergast. He advocates military intervention anywhere that the United States government feels it's necessary in the context of the, quote, war on terror. My premise is this is all about business. It's big money. United Nations operations are big money. I've been working with the UN uh, MONUC. It's called the Observer's Mission in the Congo. I've been working there for almost two years now, and it's just incredible how much money is wasted and the things that happen and, and the death and despair that's going on around the mission itself. Elliot was absolutely right. This is an incredibly huge and awful and nasty thing going on in Darfur, and we should do something about it. But when we're being lied to, again, I feel that the, the responsibility on us is to, to be able to ask the questions. When we're for, the questions are forbidden, the venues to ask the questions are closed. They're limited. They're narrow. We're restricted from getting the questions in. We're not called upon if we do go to something where we're given a chance to ask a couple questions. I encourage people to look at this book, The Political Economy of Third World Intervention, Mines, Money, and U.S. Policy in the Congo Crisis. It's by David Gibbs of Arizona, University of Arizona. It's about the Congo in the 1962 Patrice Lumumba area. And he, he puts forward a new premise about international foreign policy issues that says that it's all about business, competing businesses, big money operations competing with each other. The Sudan People's Liberation Army has been armed and trained by the United States for years. They grew as a liberation movement, but they turned into a movement that was supported by the United States at the deepest level and continues to be. You won't see this published hardly anywhere. It's not in the newspapers. You'll see over and over and over the same basic frameworks about this, quote, genocide in Sudan. And I'm also not going to get into the issue of whether it's a genocide or not, but we could talk about that later. It's not as important as the issue of the number of lives that are at stake and what we should do about it, which is why we're all here. This is in South Sudan in 2004. I was sent in working for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International. I was not paid. I do not have an interest in the outcome of this. Almost everybody in the human rights arena, the humanitarian arena, receives a huge salary unless they are from the country of origin, and then they'll be left behind if the UN pulls out, as happened in Rwanda, because there's a different standard set for local people because they're African. That's the way they're treated, as opposed to people that go in with these huge salaries, big fancy brand new four-wheel drives coming from organizations like Ford, 
Mercedes-Benz, Mitsubishi, they're making big money on this. All of these different interests work to silence people speaking out about what's really happening and to mitigate someone's understanding when they're on the ground in these places and what they should do about it. For example, when I was working in the south, in Sudan, and then in Ethiopia, there's a genocide going on today. The people being targeted are the Anuak people. I challenge you to find anything that's been published about that that I did not write. There's almost nothing. If we talk about genocide, we need to talk about the genocides that are going on in places like southwestern Ethiopia against the Anuaks. These people couldn't be poorer, couldn't be more devastated by absence of total infrastructure. Nothing. They've never had anything. They live like this. They're reverting to alcoholism. They don't know what to do. They're seeing their young men stripped out and being conscripted into warfare, which is intertribal. And it's intra-tribal, meaning that even amongst the newer tribe, who's very big in Sudan, and the Dinkas, there's all this fighting going on in South Sudan and in southern Ethiopia. It crosses these borders that were artificially constructed by the West. Because the nature of the people's civilization was that it doesn't go vertically, it goes horizontally. So the point being, there is a lot of local resistance and struggles for autonomy in Sudan. As Elliot said, he's absolutely right. This is what it looks like. When you look at the New York Times, for example, some of the pictures of South Sudan and Darfur, they're black. It shows people, but the people are black too, but it's black, like there's no sunlight there. It's not green. It's not bright. It's meant to manipulate our thinking about what's going on there. The photographs are being manipulated. The text is being manipulated. The media is completely manipulated, and it's all connected to, in my premise here, advertising and the companies that are involved in the big money that's going to come out of Sudan, not just oil. So the oil is a huge issue. The Chinese, of course, we were told, and you will be told, it's the Chinese, they're in there getting the oil. Well, if you look at the connections of the Chinese and Malaysian oil companies operating in these places, as here in, in southern Ethiopia, which is also about oil, you find that some of the directors are from Sweden, or they're from the United States. It's not about China, it's about business, and it doesn't matter which country you're from in some levels. It's very deeply connected to business interests. When, when Dr. Reeves gets up and says the Chinese and the Libyans are sending in weapons, he doesn't tell us about the SPLA sending in weapons. As Elliot pointed out, this conflict involves Chad, it involves Ethiopia, Eritrea, Egypt, Libya, Central African Republic, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, and Congo. All of these countries are involved. Sudan is at war on four fronts. It's not about Darfur. They're at war on the Ethiopian front. They're at war against Eritrea. They're at war against Chad. The U.S. military is all over these places. When we say intervention, we have to ask, intervention with what? The U.S. military is already there. We're asking to send them in to stop this horrible killing. It's like asking the fire department to go put out a fire that they lit with gasoline being poured on it all the time. That's what's going on in these places that we're talking about. The soldiers are armed and trained by the United States in southern Ethiopia as well, in Rwanda, in Congo, in Niger. The people are being brutalized. People who have no voice in this. Which doesn't mean there aren't people, for example, in this room who have a voice in this. They're connected to what's going on in the south. They have friends and family there. And this is not against them because innocent people are being hurt all over the place. But it's about getting to the truth of what it's about and what we do about it. Where does the UN get its oil? Texaco is not here. When we talk about divestment, we're hearing that we should divest, and there's this campaign of divestment against Sudan. 
12 little companies that are operating there have been targeted. For example, Amherst College divested from these 12 companies. The companies that are being divested from are not the big problems in the world. So when we look at Amherst College Board of Trustees, we should ask about this guy, Edward Nays, who's on the board of Barrick Gold, which is a George Bush corporation working in six countries in Africa. Not these other places. Five minutes, you're out of your mind. <laughs> the oil. The oil is a big one. The UN is all about money and oil. There's this map, so I'm going to pass it. Let's see. Here's a shotgun image of what the media gives you. Savagery. Black. Unfathomable violence. It's the same with Darfur, tribes in the Sahara. National Geographic is the number one example of propaganda in this country. If you look at National Geographic and think you're getting reality, you're not. You're getting corporate interests. Just look at their board of trustees. Look at their connections. Same with Human Rights Watch. I can name all of these organizations. It's ugly, but this is what it's come down to. It's come down to our lifestyles, our interests. Zimbabwe, there was a massive genocide in Zimbabwe, in southern Zimbabwe, in, in the 1983-84 time frame. You won't find this talked about anywhere. It was called the Gukarahundi, against the Ndebele people in the Matabele lands. The Ogoni people in southern Nigeria. There's a war going on with these people fighting for their very livelihoods, as Elliot described. It's not in the news. When, when it is, it's these, these uh, terrorists who've decided that they should have a little bit of the oil that they happen to be unfortunate enough to live on. The Ogoni issue is off the press. We get Samantha Power, bystanders to genocide in Rwanda. The United States didn't stand by and let genocide in Rwanda happen. It didn't happen with machetes any more than it happened with tanks. Lazar Kaplan, Maurice Templesman, the former lover of Jackie Kennedy, he's on the board at Harvard, one of their AIDS institute. He's a big, big player in Central Africa, in Congo, in Rwanda. He's after diamonds, and that's his company. You won't see this mentioned in Samantha Power's books when she's talking at Harvard, for example. She's just not giving you the truth. The tanks, the Shell Oil Company meeting with the, the current president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, who was trained at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He's, he's Pentagon all the way. There was a coup in Rwanda in 1994. It was a coup, a coup d'etat. We took out the government and put it on our own. This is it. These soldiers that committed atrocities in Congo, where I've been working, they've committed atrocities in Rwanda, Uganda, they were sent with the African Union force up to Darfur. Peacekeeping. That's interests. Their interest is they're connected to the United States. They're trained by U.S. soldiers. That's a U.S. force in Darfur today called a peacekeeping force. And anyway, there was a U.S. military guy on, on board, and there are other U.S. military operating behind the scenes invisibly. These weapons, President Museveni from Uganda... More killing is going on in northern Uganda, I believe, now than in Sudan. But you don't see the issue of northern Uganda because he's willing to work with the IMF. The Khartoum government isn't willing to work with the International Monetary Fund, perhaps. Khartoum government is a terrorist government. Well, so is the United States government, and so is the Israeli government. Why aren't these governments being targeted? Why doesn't Eric Reeves speak about them? I mean, when you talk about pure numbers of killing and our involvement in these conflicts, you have to talk about these things. The child soldiers in South Sudan. I mean, if the UN's standing up and speaking against child soldiers and there's all these treaties and human rights reports, but the kids still have the guns, who makes the guns? Smith & Wesson in Connecticut. The AK-47s go into Darfur. Curiously enough, some Bedouin, these are guys on camels, some Bedouins from the Sahara go into Darfur, buy the AK-47s, ship them out through Egypt, another big player, and they end up in Palestine 
where the Palestinian tunnel diggers are using them to fight against the Israeli occupation. Now, isn't that interesting? You have to ask, well, how does Israel get involved in all of this? This is Sudan. National Geographic doesn't give us a piece of Israel. Israel wants the uranium. Coca-Cola wants the gum Arabic. Two-thirds of the world's supply of gum Arabic comes out of Darfur. Not Sudan. Darfur. Two-thirds of world supply. And it's the best gum Arabic found in the world. Coca-Cola needs it. In the 1980s, USAID set up huge projects in Sudan to get the gum Arabic to help the agriculture to produce gum Arabic. When the Khartoum government took over the terrorist regime... Now, the, the regime in Khartoum is not a nice group of people. Nobody's saying... I haven't heard anybody saying that they aren't terrible people. What they're doing is terrible. But what we're saying is that it's far more than just this group of people in Khartoum that are involved in... A, it's not a one-sided war. You can't have war with one group of people. Somebody's warring against somebody. Coca-Cola's interests are huge. There's the president of Uganda having a Coke. This is powerful stuff. You won't see that kind of picture in the media. There's the defense attaché from the British High Commission in Uganda, on your left, checking the gold samples in the South Sudan, Northern Uganda region. Gold, the defense attaché, weapons, defense, gold. You put it together, it's a very simple equation. I'm going to try to wrap up really quickly. Christian organizations are all over it. And the Christian coalition is very big behind this thing. So is the Zionist Israeli lobby. But the Center for Security Policy, check out them, divestterror.org. And you'll find it's the same group of companies that need to be, that Eric Reeves is calling for divestment from, that everyone's calling for divestment from. But it's, it's nothing. It's not targeting anybody or anything anywhere, really. It makes no difference. It's all new, hype, loud noises. The UN occupation in Haiti, they're doing horrible, horrible things. What's a UN intervention for if they're doing horrible things? I mentioned CARE. In Afghanistan, where I was recently, another, quote, war on terror country. Well, six years ago, we, we knew that Sudan was next to be targeted. Afghanistan was on the list. Sudan, Yemen. I mean, we can make a long list of who's next, and then we'll just sit around and wait for the certain propaganda that's going to convince us that we need to get rid of this nasty government. No, I don't mean the one in Washington but we do need to get rid of that. So the weapons in Afghanistan, absolutely. War on terror. Where did the weapons come from? Same thing. Monuk, big, big business. Look at this boat on the Congo River. Who sold that boat to the United Nations? I want to know who gave them that contract. This is money. It's not about warfare. And anyway, the, the Pakistani soldiers get together with bagpipes after the, after the day's work, and they have a cricket game with the Indian soldiers. Is this serious intervention? Is this serious saving lives? No. It's not. It's a party. And people are making a lot of money. And people are getting killed. All of these organizations, you can connect them to interests and what's going on there. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it, but you have to look at every single media venue that you see from an Atlantic Monthly who's calling for missile systems in outer space, so is the Center for Security Policy, and they're calling for divestment from Sudan, replacing the government, regime change. It's all the same stuff. been listening to investigative journalist and genocide investigator Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show has been Darfur, an open discussion about intervention, regime change, and the politics of genocide, part one. 
This event on the ongoing crisis in the Darfur region of Sudan was sponsored by the Northampton Committee to End the War in Iraq, the Trap Rock Peace Center, the International Action Center in New York and Springfield, and Touchstone Farm. The audio was provided by Charles Jenks of the Trap Rock Peace Center. Visit their website at www.traprockpeace.org. Sarah Flounders of the International Action Center can be contacted at www.iacenter.org. The website for Keith Harmon Snow is www.allthingspass.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. <laughs>